hard to take this thing on and off. There you go. Uh, welcome again to Christ Community Church. It's good to be here. I'm glad to um, get to share a little bit with you this morning. Uh, my name is Sam Kennedy. As David said, I'm the campus minister for RUF, the Reformed University Fellowship at UNCW, which is uh, the college ministry of uh, the Presbyterian Church in America denomination. So um, I work as a, a campus minister, almost as like a uh, one-third chaplain, one-third evangelist, one-third guidance counselor, I think, to, to college students. Um, and this semester, uh, in our RUF large group meetings and in our small groups, uh, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And uh, in 13 weeks, we've gone through the entire Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it's been amazing to see how this passage of Scripture has been so relevant <laughs> to what is going on in our lives and... Um, just has been really convicting for me and for our students and challenging. So I hope it is the same for you. Uh, this morning we're, we're um, dealing with a, a small little section of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, uh, just verses 13 through 16. It's uh, on the Pew Bibles. It's page uh, 810. And just to orient you, this uh, section of the Sermon on the Mount comes right after the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are kind of where Jesus describes the character of a Christian. Uh, the, the attitudes and uh, the attributes uh, that a citizen of the kingdom of heaven has in the world. You know, they're, they're poor in spirit. Uh, they're um, uh, hungry and thirsty for righteousness. They're, they have this peacemaking spirit. They're meek. Um, and then Jesus moves in this kind of hinge section right here from the character of a Christian to the function of a Christian in the world. You know, when you take these people who, who are living and um, displaying the, the character qualities and the, and the Beatitudes, when you put them into a world that doesn't agree with them, that doesn't understand them, that's maybe even opposed to them, uh, what, what, how are they going to function? What, what's going to happen? And so uh, we'll start in verse 13 here of Matthew Chapter 5, Jesus looks out at his congregation and he says this, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but in a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, this is your word that you have given to us. Your words are trustworthy and true. Lord, the grass withers, the flower fades. All powers and principalities of this world will fall away and crumble to the dust, but in the end, your word will stand. 
Indeed, Lord, you say that, that even the smallest letter of your law will not fall away, but will be fulfilled and will remain until the very end of time. Lord Jesus, uh, would you speak to us today? Would you call and convict and comfort according to whatever our needs are, according to your gracious law that you have given us? We ask in uh, your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So this morning, Jesus is talking to us about what our posture should be to the world around us. Even more so, I think, um, we might uh, think of it as uh, our attitude and our posture uh, toward people that disagree with us. Uh, people who are different than us. Uh, so wh- whatever you would define as us or people like us or people like us, uh, wh- what people like us think and behave and believe. Now, whether that's a political category or a, a kind of social category or a theological category or just a kind of cultural preference that you have, whatever you think of you know, when you think of people like us, the things that people like us do and people like us believe, you always have a, 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 an idea of who they are or who people like them are. <laughs> people who believe differently, who act differently, who think differently, who practice differently, who speak differently. And so when Jesus is talking to us today about our position as it relates to the world, he's talking about, hey, people like us and people like them. How do you respond to whoever they are. And what Jesus is going to say is the way that you deal with people who are different, the way you deal with difference is actually going to speak to the ultimate commitments of your heart. The way you respond to things out there is actually going to tell you a lot about what's going on in here. And the way Jesus is going to describe this, and I think this is so helpful because he's talking to a, a mixed community of people that are, that are coming to, to get instruction about the kingdom of God. And there's some people who are fully on board with Jesus, you know, that are full-on disciples. They've lost everything to follow him. There's some people who are the kind of religious leaders, and they're just interested in what Jesus is saying and, and what the response is going to be and like what kind of following he's garnering. And they're you know, just kind of Uh, checking the prevailing winds to see what's going on with this Jesus movement that's happening. And then you've got people who are just coming broken and needy and are wanting to hear and wanting to learn about the kingdom of God from this remarkable man. And so what Jesus is going to say here is that the way we, as his audience, deal with difference is going to be the acid test of the Christian life, the acid test of the commitments of our heart and our faith. Now, I don't know if you know what an acid test is, but when people talk about this, this, um, this phrase, it refers to something that used to happen back in the, the, um, the gold rush. So you would uh, have prospectors, these kind of old salty, you know, bearded guys that would be out in the wilderness and they'd be panning for gold in the hills. And they'd get uh, some kind of stone or some kind of metal that looked like it might be gold. You know, it shined like gold. It was pretty like gold. And from all kind of outward appearances, they thought, this is probably gold. I hope it's the real thing. I hope it's really uh, this, this valuable, precious metal. And the way they would find out the preciousness and the reality of this substance 
is that they would take acid and pour it on it. And a less, a less precious substance, a, a fool's gold, or some other lesser substance, would react to the acid. So it would have some kind of chemical reaction with the acid, and the reaction would tell you that it wasn't really the, the genuine article. But true gold, because of its preciousness, because of its rarity, because of its value, would be non-reactive to this acid. And I think in the same way, Jesus is saying that true followers, people whose hearts are set on Zion, people who are following after Jesus as his Lord and as their Lord and King, they will be free not to react to people who are different than them, but actually to respond to those who are different than them. Now, there's a big difference here. You know, psychologists talk about the difference between reactiveness and responsiveness. Reactiveness is when you get into a situation, you get into a conversation with someone, and, you know, like the hairs on the back of your neck start to stick up. And you don't really get to think, right? You just get to respond. So whatever it is, if it's like, I'm going to respond with anger, I'm going to respond with fear, I'm going to respond by kind of, kind of controlling, that's reactiveness. You know, someone shoots at you, you shoot right back. But responsiveness is when you, you have the ability to kind of gather yourself and engage in a productive and a fruitful way, not just kind of bounce back or deliver back whatever's been delivered to you. And so in the same way, Jesus is saying his followers, people whose hearts are set on Jesus and, and Jesus is enthroned on their heart as Lord and King, they're going to be free not merely to react, but to respond to those who are different. And he gives us two images, the image of salt and the image of light. And the way I want to gather these two images together and what I think they're saying is, is that Jesus wants us to see that his followers should be both distinct from, but also devoted to those who disagree with them. So first, Christians are supposed to be distinct from those who disagree, distinct from the world. Now, um, Jesus talks about us being the, the light of the world. So what does he mean by the, 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 this phrase, the world? Well, the world, depending on where you go uh, in the New Testament, you'll see that sometimes the world just kind of means uh, this whole kind of created order. You know, some of which is very bad and some of which is not as bad as it could be and is actually getting quite better. And so, uh, but also there's places like in the Gospel of John, for instance, where it talks about the world as a kind of power, as a kind of non, um, an anti-God uh, force or system at work in the world. And so I think, however you want to think about this, I think Jesus is, is actually... Um, kind of leaning more towards the kind of anti-God system view of world. He's saying, you know, when you get out into the world and you get out to people who are opposed to you or opposed to me, how do you respond to them? And uh, he says, you're supposed to be salt and light. And what those metaphors tell us, I think, is when we get into the world that, that uh, we want to see both what the world is like and both what the world needs. So, so, so what the world is like, remember we're talking about being distinct from the world. These, these metaphors of salt and light tell us that the world is actually really needy. That the world is a decaying, a dull, and a dark place. That it's decaying, uh, meaning it's subject to these forces of, of entropy. 
That's what the salt metaphor tells us. Because, you see, salt in the ancient world was used uh, for preserving meat. What happens to meat if you don't refrigerate it, right? If you don't preserve it? I mean, it's just going to get rotten. It's going to start to stink. It's going to start to break apart. And so Jesus is saying, in the same way, you're supposed to have this um, preserving impact on the world around you. Like, meat without salt is meat that's going to go bad really, really quick. But the world isn't just decaying. The world is also dull. (laughs) Like, uh, think about this. Um, Have you ever tried to have... um, french fries without salt. I mean, I know some of you have, and some of you, because of dietary restrictions and stuff, you have to do this, and my heart goes out to you. Because french fries without salt are, quite frankly, awful. They're dull. Uh, And so Jesus is saying salt has both this preserving quality and uh, this, uh, this adding of savor and flavor. But not only that, When Jesus describes the world as dark, he's saying that the world is a dangerous place, a scary place. But in scripture, remember, darkness also means ignorance. It's a a lack of knowledge that would help. Uh, At at the very end of of the book of Jonah, God talks about uh, the people of the city of Nineveh. This, this really dark pagan city. And God says, should I not care about this great city where there's all these people who don't know their right hand from their left? He's talking about ignorance. <laughs> He's talking about darkness as a lack of knowledge. And so the world is decaying. The world is dull. The world is dark. Here's what Jesus doesn't say about the world. It's basically good. <laughs> um, you know, that view of humanity that view of the culture, that view of the world, that ba- all people are basically good, is a view that, that came out after the Enlightenment and was really popular up until about World War II, when people learned, wow, humanity is actually way more twisted and way more depraved than we could have ever imagined. And so people's eyes were opened to the real darkness of this world and and the real um, sinful, evil possibilities of human beings. And so Jesus is both describing what the world's like, but he also is helping us avoid these two errors. And so when we think about being distinct from the world, I I want us to avoid these, these two errors that Jesus is pointing out. First, in verse 13, he talks about deluded Christians. Not deluded like uh, misled, but deluded like watered down. Um, In verse 13, he talks about salt losing its saltiness. And he says, how can its saltiness be restored? It's not even good for anything anymore just to be thrown out. It's basically garbage. It's lost its purpose. Our faith, our witness becomes diluted and watered down when we compromise our faithfulness. When we cease to stand out as different, when we just uh, conform to the prevailing winds of the culture around us. We cease to seek to speak, cease to speak differently, believe differently, spend differently, live differently than people who don't believe in Jesus. So that's the first error. Jesus is saying uh, you can't lose your saltiness, and so he's commending allegiance to him alone. That you have to be uh, faithful to him. Uh, and and I think. 
honestly, for us, uh, especially those of us in more like religiously serious traditions of Christianity, um, this isn't the error that most of us are going to fall into. Because most of us are going to say, oh, of course, you don't want to compromise with that, you know, with the sinful world or the sinful culture. And so what we have to do is get as far away from that broken culture as we can. And while I think the, the, um, the heart behind that, uh, that, that the impulse uh, to, to want to be faithful is good, what we miss is that Jesus is not calling us to be uh, separate, separate from the world. Because look what he says next. He says, also, we don't just want to be diluted. We also don't want to be introspective or insulated Christians. And the way that Jesus describes this error is in verse 14 and 15, where he talks about a light that shines, but no one gets to see it. It's, it's a light that gets put under a bowl. And so it doesn't actually get to spread out and do anything. It just only does good and it only shines light to those who are under the bowl. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, listen, we cannot compromise on our presence in the world. We can't just be faithful, but invisible. Christian people were designed to be attracted to and attractive to those around us. Now, the thing that makes us attractive, and I think this is so beautiful, is it's nothing in us. It's Christ in us. Because the word that Jesus used for lamp here is a lamp. It's almost like a lantern. And so the idea is that we're just the container And then the light gets placed in us. So Christians shine light into the world like lamps, not like the sun. Or to to maybe use a more consistent metaphor, we're like the moon, not the sun. Because the moon doesn't shine, right? But what does the moon do? How, How do we get to see the moon? We only see the moon because it's reflecting the light from the sun. And so in the same way, the light of a Christian... The difference of a Christian in the world, we're different in that we're reflecting something um, distinctive into the world. It's the aroma and the savor of Jesus Christ. And when we reflect this into the world, it draws people in, in the same way that Jesus drew people in. All kinds of people, needy people, broken people, sinful people, but it also repels others. And it tends to repel the same kind of people that Jesus repelled. Those who wanted to use him for their own purposes. Uh, Those um, who wanted uh, him to justify them on the basis of their works. And so in the same way, Christians are called to be in the world as Jesus was in the world. And we're supposed to have this attractive quality. And in the same way that Jesus did, again, we're supposed to move into the world attractive to uh, those who are in the dark. Because, I mean, when you, let's say you have, um, you know, a light off in a closet. So the closet is full of darkness and then the main room is full of light. When you open the closet door, what happens? Does the darkness move out into the the well-lit room? No. The light shines into the darkness and the darkness does not overcome the light. (laughs) So in the same way, when we move out into the world, our distinctiveness must not be translated into a separateness. The light must move into the darkness. It cannot help but move into the darkness. 
And so I think the application for us here is, I think, if, if we want to be uh, distinctive in the way Jesus is calling us to be distinctive, if we want to be responsive and not merely reactive, we need to ask the question, where is the fear? Where's the anger? When we think about the state of society, when we think about the state of other people, when we think about the state of non-believers, where do you find yourself just getting angry, getting frustrated? Um, And that may be a clue that something has captured your heart other than the love of Jesus. That, that something has grabbed a hold of your affections and your priorities. And in that moment, something else is bigger than the Lord and his rule and his reign and his control over everything and even uh, his control over your life and the safety of your family and the safety of your loved ones and his stewardship over all things in heaven and on earth. This is what um, Peter says when he's writing to a group of Christians who are facing persecutions. He says, do not fear what they fear. Be distinct. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. So when you fear, when you feel persuaded um, to fall into worldly patterns of fear, fearing what people fear, whether it's on the right or the left, Those are both worldly forms of fear. And Jesus is saying, don't conform to the world. Be distinct from the world. But it's not enough just to be distinct from the world. Christians are also called to be devoted to the world. Now, what I mean by this, of course, is not that Christians are called to be devoted to uh, in the sense of like, Uh, serving and worshiping and becoming subject to the power of the non-Christian world, right? But instead, what I mean when I say that Christians are called to be devoted to the world is that they're supposed to be committed to it, committed to its care, committed to its health. Uh, Because you see, the culture isn't isn't just like some, um, you know, rundown building on the other side of town. You know, that, 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 that's going to fall down and, and you don't have to do anything about it and, and we just have to stay as far away from it as we can because once it collapses, we don't want to be caught anywhere near it. Instead, the culture is like a swimming pool that everyone in the neighborhood comes to use, including your kids, including your loved ones. And we all have to swim in it. We all have to use it. It's a stream that we all have to drink from because we share a common life together. And so the Bible says, you have to care for that. You have to steward it. You have to leave it better than you found it. And the way that Jesus describes this is, again, through these two metaphors of salt and light. But I just want to focus on the light one really quick for for time's sake. When you go into a museum and you see a well-lit painting, uh, a painting, uh, uh, you know, that is you know, so beautiful and so remarkable, and the curator of the museum has taken the time to, to, to light it in just the right way, what do you say? You don't stand before this masterpiece and go, wow, what incredible lighting. 
Instead, you say, wow, what an incredible painting. Because our function in the world is to expend ourselves, to take the posture, I would say, of servants. Uh, just like the, the, the section in Philippians 2 that, that y'all as a church are memorizing says that Jesus took the posture, the, the, the very form of a servant in the world, that he came to stoop and to serve, to expend himself uh, for the good of those who disagreed with him, even those who would put him to death. And so when we uh, expend ourselves, when, when we go to serve the world, we actually start to reveal a whole new order of life. And we, we demonstrate the reality of the kingdom of God because they go, where is this light coming from? Well, the, the light comes from our difference. The light comes from our, our connection to and our fear of Jesus Christ as Lord, not from our fear of man. Uh, I think this is one of the more incredible quotes I've read this year. Uh, uh, This uh, writer said that we often fail to see the connection between the word gospel and the concept of the kingdom of God. And mostly it's because when we use the Greek word Christ instead of the Jewish word Messiah, which is, you know, it means basically the same thing. People tend to think of Jesus Christ as just, you know, Jesus, first name, Christ, his last name. But actually, to the original audience, it meant Jesus the King, Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus, the King who was promised to Israel. Jesus, the King who was promised and who was who who is going to come and, and sit and rule and reign on the throne of God, who is making all things new. Jesus, the the ruler of a whole new order of life, who has delivered me so I can be a part of it. Delivered us so that we can be devoted to serving others in the world. Um, The only way that we can do this, the only way we can be devoted to those who don't agree with us is if in our hearts we are actually devoted not just to serving others, but to serving Christ. Again, like Peter says, we have to set apart Christ as Lord because our service and our activity flows out of what's going on in our heart. And y'all, this is the, the, this is the mistake that so many forms of Christianity that only focused on doing good works, that only focus on acts of public righteousness miss, is that they forget that if you really need, are going to obey the command to love your neighbor as yourself, you need to both fully acknowledge the sinfulness and brokenness of your neighbor and the sinfulness and brokenness of yourself and the love of Christ for you in your brokenness. That you can only serve and forgive others if you really know and acknowledge that you have been served and you have been forgiven. And so for us... I, I think um, the service of Christ, uh, the devotion to Christ in the world, it has to work out in, in concrete ways. And I'll just close with this illustration. Uh, some of you have heard of this. Um, in uh, the third century, uh, there was a, a thing that happened called the Plague of Cyprian. It was this worldwide pandemic that happened. 
and it caused upwards of 5,000 deaths a day just in the city of Rome. And the, the population of Rome wasn't that much back in the day, so 5,000 was like a lot. Um, and as the whole world panicked, this is what Christians did. Uh, the, the guy who was the Bishop of Alexandria, this is what he said Christians did. He said, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves, thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick. They attended to their every need and they ministered to them in Christ. And, and with those sick people, they departed this life serenely happy for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their place. And listen to what he says. But those outside the church with the pagan, everything was quite otherwise. They deserted those who began to be sick and they fled from their dearest friends. They shunned any participation or fellowship with death. With yet with all their precautions, it wasn't easy for them to escape. Translation, they tried to run from death, but death found them anyway. And so Christians fearlessly ran toward the danger. I, you, you all have seen that, that really arresting picture of, of the city of Houston uh, during the, the recent hurricane that happened a couple years ago. You know, when there's all of these cars uh, lining the highway coming out of Houston, but then there's this trickle of cars coming in. And who, who, who were coming in? The relief workers. Everyone was leaving the city, but the fearless few who had devoted themselves to serving those in need, they, they went in. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is calling us to be both different from, but also devoted to, broken people in our midst. He's calling us to set apart him as Lord. He's calling us to think of those outside this building, those outside of our group of friends, um, uh, not, not as enemies to be conquered, but as needy, broken people that need to be loved and won to Christ. And so he's calling us to be broken. He's calling us to be scattered. He's calling us to be poured out like salt and light to a dull and decaying and dying world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for this day. Thank you uh, for your words to us uh, that bring healing and health. Lord, help us uh, to follow your example, to follow your commands. And for those of us, um, Lord, who are gripped by fear, who are gripped by uncertainty, who are gripped by anger, Lord, would you deliver them from worldly fear? And would you, Lord, reign in their heart above all else? Uh, remind them, Lord, that you are seated on the throne and that you one day are returning to make all things new. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen.